Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. All right, we're going to finish up the book of Jonah. And and so what I've been doing as we've gone through this sermon series is is really talk about Jonah through the lens of evangelism and missions. I've given you guys several book references, just different things of uh, ways to engage the culture um, that people are using and just effective means of, of sharing Christ with others. And I've asked you to email me and, and keep me updated and let me know how I can be praying for the people that you're praying for who don't know Jesus. And so I just want to share a couple of these with you. Tom Whitties, one of our elders here, he's praying for a man that he met at Target. He's the son of a, a Baptist preacher, actually, and straying from the Lord, wandering away from God right now. It gets a good chance. Tom and I live close to one of the Targets in town, so we get a chance to talk and, and visit that often. So just continue to pray for this young man. Uh, Don Dunn is praying for five believers on a normal, regular prayer rotation in his life. He's got a friend that's a little bit, he's known for over 50 years. He's confident that he's an unbeliever. Recently encouraged him to read through the Gospel of John. Uh, Kept keeping this communication, this relationship intact for the purpose of of reaching him um, with the Gospel. Kathy Dunn is always witnessing. I've heard her talk a lot about their Russian neighbor, neighbor Olga is her name. If you guys remember that name, for sure, to pray for Olga. Uh, we have actually have some of our missionaries, the Dupuis, our missionaries in Russia. We've engaged them to be a part of reaching Olga and um, just continue to pray for that relationship. They have coffee together almost on a weekly basis. Recently gave her Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, which is another great way of engaging a conversation with the lost. Uh, Nina Cowan is praying for Gloria and Bob and Dale and Harley. Jan Williams is praying for atheist Betty, a Jewish lady named Sylvia, and another lady named Jan who uh, was treated really poorly by Christians in the past and totally turned off to Christianity and the gospel. And so just regularly praying for these people. And so so what I want us to all kind of take away from this sermon series on Jonah, I'm sure there's many other people here who have been praying for people, you've been thinking about people in your life and opportunities to engage them with the gospel is just continue to do that. And at the very least, one very simple thing that you can do is invite somebody to church. Uh, The worst thing that they're going to tell you is no, and that's okay. Uh, Continue to keep that relationship um, involved and engaged and and look for those opportunities just just to meet people and to see where they are relationally engaged for the purpose of bringing them to Christ. Um, Instead of judging, labeling, and condemning unbelievers, I would like to see us loving, engaging, and praying for unbelievers. Instead of being a, a church that's known for high ivory towers and being somewhat closed off to the world and to the culture around us, I'd like for us to be a church that's known for being extremely welcoming to the lost a hospital for the hurting, maybe even more so than a, than a classroom for saints, a place that people can come to and experience the grace of Jesus Christ, relationships that matter, 
and just the difference that that makes in our life as you share your stories and testimonies. All of us have a responsibility to do the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Where that starts is with your relationships and praying for unbelievers. All right, so every great revival that we have seen in the history of the American church, really in the history of the church in general, has not started by some great mystical experience. It's actually started by two or three people coming together and praying, just praying for God to do a work. The first great awakening, the second great awakening, the haystack prayer warriors over and over again Go back and look at the book of Acts when the church was first growing. The men in that place were gathering for a time of prayer. And the Holy Spirit came and, and did amazing, miraculous things. And so, so I want you to continue thinking about that. I'm encouraged by your emails. You can continue to send those to me, and I will engage in prayer with you. Um, but, but let's do our job, and, and let's continue to look for these opportunities. But it's football season, so now here's the time for my real introduction, all right? It's football season. God, I just, I get silly up here, guys, sorry. One of my favorite coaches is uh, Mike Ditka. Harold, do you know that guy? Mike Ditka <laughs> was one of these guys in Chicago. Uh, he's kind of got a face of football on him. And Mike Ditka was known for a uh, couple of things in his coaching career and in his, his playing career as a tight end, played for a long time, Hall of Fame football player, Hall of Fame football coach. And he would tell his, his team and his players over and over again, there's, there's two keys to success. If you want to be a successful football player, here's what you're going to do. Number one, every time you're on the field, whether it's a practice or a game, you give 110%. You don't leave anything on the field, off the field. You, you don't reserve anything. You leave it all on there. Everything you got, 110%, every time you give it on the gridiron for battle. And the way that he would say it, I can't do it right, and so I'm not even going to try. But the second thing that he would say is, is very simple. He says, the guy that's lined up in front of you, your job is to beat him. Really simple. You'll be a successful football team, give everything you've got, hold nothing back, and whoever's lined up in front of him, just make sure that you can beat that guy. And if everybody on your team does those two things, you're going to be a successful football team. Pretty simple, right? So what I want to do is I want to give you not two simple takeaways, but three simple takeaways from the book of Jonah. These are, what I'm calling these are Jonah lessons. And if we don't take anything else away from the book of Jonah, I want you to remember these three things, these three keys that are going to help us remember this message and apply it to our hearts. And, and this is going to be uh, stated in negative. I think that's the best way to do it. The three things I want to talk about as we summarize the book of Jonah this morning. Oftentimes, as Christians, we fall into this pattern, this sinful tendency of, number one, trusting ourselves too much, number two, judging others too quickly, and number three, forgetting grace too often. Three takeaways from the book of Jonah as we summarize this morning. Be careful of trusting yourself too much, judging others too quickly, and forgetting grace too often. And I believe the successful strategy for overcoming those three negative tendencies for Christians is to simply to tap into, to study, and to give yourself to a better understanding of the character of God. 
in particular, God's goodness. I think if we can learn more and more every single day, week in and week out, about who God is and what he has revealed himself concerning in scriptures about who he is, we would be much better at these three takeaways from the book of Jonah. A.W. Tozer has a really good book. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, he says this, the church today has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted it for one so low as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. He says it's impossible to keep our moral practices sound in our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous, erroneous and inadequate. And then he says this, he says, if we could bring back the spiritual power into our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. Jonah would have been saved from a thousand lesser evils if he had simply thought of God more nearly as he is and as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And so I want to think about the character of God and God's goodness as we talk about these three things this morning. Number one in your outline, number one this morning. Far too often we trust ourselves too much. Why don't you look at Jonah chapter one. We're going to flip around a little bit this morning, okay? Uh, Look at verse four, and here's where where we will start. Jonah one, verse four. After Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh, he goes the opposite direction, down to the port city of Joppa, He gets on a boat, and he goes the opposite direction from Nineveh. All right, we pick it up in verse 4. As he's sailing away on the ship, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. He had lain down, and he was fast asleep. And J.I. Packer's got a really good book. It's a classic. It's called Knowing God. And he says in it that pursuing God's wisdom means being a realist concerning the things around you. If you're going to pursue the wisdom of God, you are going to be a realist concerning the things around you. And he said that most of us live in a dream world with our head in the sky and our feet off the ground. And as a result, we never see the world or our lives in it as they really are. And he gives, the, uh, he gives the illustration of driving. Remember the days? How many of you guys have taught a teenager how to drive before? Jeremy, are you guys, are you guys about to do this? We, we talked about this a little bit. I'm so sorry, man. My dad taught me how to drive. I'd, I'll never forget it. Um, the white knuckles, just the... <laughs> Uh, comments, They're, they were so priceless. I just, every once in a while, I just drastically stopped the car just to shake them up a little bit. It was highly comical. I'll, and anybody that's 15 or 16, feel free to do that with your parents here, except for Henry when you turn that age, because, you know, I'll just, you just won't drive. So it's all good. Um, but most of us, when we learn, think about the time when you learn how to drive. When you first learn how to drive, and you were going around a sharp turn, none of us really said to ourselves, I really wonder why that turn is there. Why'd they make the road with this, this really drastic sharp turn? I mean, sometimes you can see something there, but you're never like, 
why did they lay out the road that direction? If you, if you drive past a parked car somewhere off the side or, or you're looking at a parking lot, as a driver, you first learn how to drive, you don't really ask yourself, I wonder what, wonder what that person parked there for. I wonder what he's going to do. And when you're learning how to drive, you learn how to look at the road in front of you to keep your eyes on the road, to react well to the situations that are in front of you. It becomes about responses and thinking ahead and preparing for situations in case they came in front of you or behind you. You always want to keep your eyes on the road and what's in front of you. And, and Jonah here is much like, he's like a distracted driver who's just learning how to drive. Because instead of keeping his eyes in front of him on God and having a God focus for his life and for his calling, he, his eyes are focused more on himself, on what's going to bring him comfort, on what he wants to do. Instead of trusting God, he's very self-centered. Instead of focusing on God, he's very self-focused. And I think we see this the most in chapter 1, right when Jonah is running away from God, and so God sends this storm on the sea. In fact, the text says, he hurled a storm. You're seeing God is, that's your Hebrew word for throwing. God is throwing a storm on the sea like a warrior throws a spear. You see the sailors throwing the cargo out of the ship. This, there's a lot of drama. These are action-packed words, and we're entering into a very dramatic scene when we read these. The way it's written in Hebrew is interesting because right in the middle of this verse it says, but Jonah, but the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and it was threatened, the ship threatened to break up, the mariners were afraid, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. What that, what that describes is simultaneous action. So as the sea is raging on the outside, you get the view of Jonah on the inside. You're getting two perspectives here. If you're watching this on the screen, you'd have two different camera angles, perhaps. On the ship above, you got the sailors frantically striving. In the ship below, you have the prophet quietly sleeping. And then verse 6, it has this really interesting Hebrew construction, okay? So the captain came and he said to him, speaking of Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? That's not really good English there. Uh, it's not really even in good Hebrew either when you read it. It's, uh, your text might say something just a little bit different there. It's not a, typically you would look at that and you would think it's a evocative of a dress. Sleeper is addressing Jonah, but that's not the way that it's written in Hebrew. Literally, when you read this, it's, what to you sleeping, says the captain. And to understand it, Sleeper is not a form of address there. It stresses the action of Jonah sleeping. And what it communicates is a deep sleep, an uninterrupted sleep. This is the REM cycle sleep. You are, you are deep. You are getting your energy back. And, and we probably should translate this something like, listen, prophet of God, how can this storm be raging so violently and you are sleeping so deeply and quietly below? Meaning, Jonah just wasn't catching a little cat nap on the bottom of that ship. He didn't close his eyes and just fade away into a dream world. He's not worried. He's not wondering. He's not anxious about disobeying the call of God. He's sleeping. 
He's peaceful. He should be confessing in sorrow. Instead, he's sleeping in peace. Jonah was a man who was completely trusting in himself, his knowledge, his will, his assumptions, his desires. He was plunging in the, into the depths of human wisdom and forsaking God's wisdom. He was a self-sufficient, self-independent prophet, forsaking his dependence on God in his answer to the call in obedience. Jonah trusted in himself way too much throughout this entire book. As Christians, we can often fall into the exact same thing. Number two, Jonah lessons this morning. Be careful that you don't judge others too quickly. Be careful that you don't judge others too quickly. Remember we said that uh, Jonah chapter 4 is the most important chapter in the book because it reveals a lot that we don't know about at the beginning of the book. In Jonah chapter 4, we learn the most, most about Jonah's heart. Things are revealed in chapter 4 that we didn't know about in chapter 1, namely the motivations of his heart. Why did Jonah flee in the first place? Now, the things that were in his heart that weren't revealed are revealed in chapter 4 through his mouth and through what he says. So, so turn to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. All of a sudden now we learn why Jonah decided to go in the opposite direction when God had called him to Nineveh. Verse 2, Jonah 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said to you when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in loving and steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So if there's any question why Jonah was sleeping and running in chapter 1, Jonah chapter 4 makes it abundantly clear. He knew that God was a gracious and merciful God and might actually forgive the Ninevites for their evil and for their personal sin. And in his heart, Jonah had already judged them unworthy of the grace of God. He didn't think that they deserved it. He didn't want to see them experience it. It was really a, it was a really good proverb, Proverbs 12, verse 18. I, I bring this to mind a lot. Think about this proverb. Try to remember it. It goes something like this. I've got it on the screen for you. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In the context of, of judging people, Jonah was a prophet, chapter 4, who had much more reckless words than he had healing words. And so God taught him a lesson about judging others in his own perspective. I probably shared this with you before, but for a long time, um, in America and our modern context here, the most famous verse of the Bible, if you asked anybody what, their, what verse of the Bible they knew, they really didn't know any other verses, they would tell you is, is John 3.16. It's the, it's the poster verse that you see at the football games, everywhere plastered. John 3.16 has been the most famous verse for a really long time, just until the last two or three years here. Now the most famous verse is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. So when I say be careful of judging others too quickly, that's a, that's a loaded phrase. In some sense, as Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are actually called to judge others. 
to judge others in the faith. Of course, we, we judge ourselves to see if we're in the faith, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. But sometimes it's our responsibility with loving relationships in Christ, if we see people struggling with sin that they maybe cannot see for themselves, that we would lovingly approach them in gentleness, go to them, talk about those things, lead them through this process of confession and repentance, and, and keep them accountable. We do this in truth. We do it in love, as the Apostle Paul called us to in Ephesians chapter 4. Bonhoeffer, in his uh, Life Together, he talks about this a lot. He's, he says this, Does God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him, needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. A lot of times what Bonhoeffer will go on to say is the Christ in your own heart is weaker than the Christ in the mouth of your brother, right? There are things that we often forget ourselves that we need to be reminded of in Christian community. That's not the judging that I'm talking about in the book of Jonah. It's a good place for that in the Christian community. Jonah made judgment calls about whether or not the Ninevites deserved grace. His judgment was completely different. He was judging unbelievers, forgetting to look at himself in the mirror, and he convinced himself that some people were good enough to deserve salvation and others were not good enough, which is not the Christian gospel at all. That's a false gospel. It's a gospel of, of good works. That's you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, working harder, tougher, stronger, digging down deep. That's the Hollywood gospel. If you just push yourself hard enough, if you dig deep enough, by golly, you can achieve anything that you want. That's not the Christian gospel. Jonah judged the Ninevites because of their nationality. They didn't come from a historical, great Christian nation like America. So they don't deserve Christianity. For him, it was Israel, right? Jonah judged them based on their religion. They were pagans. Jonah was a God-fearing, God-worshiper, although he looks like he's not fearing the Lord as much as the pagans were in chapter 1. Jonah judged them based on what he saw on the inside, on the outside, excuse me, but he failed to look at himself on the inside because he was filthy. Uh, Ken Sandy's got a, a really good book called Peacemakers, and he, he lists this as a principle for achieving good conflict resolution when we come into conflicts. Uh, I think it applies here. He says, ask God to help you make charitable judgments about other people. He said, a, a good principle of being a person who breathes grace and peace is to ask God to help you make charitable judgments about others. And what he means by that is this. He defines it. He says, out of love for God, strive to believe the best about another until you have the facts to prove you otherwise. And I think that's really important for us just as we walk through life, because the more godless and the more secular this world gets, the easier it is to kind of point things out and judge people from the hip without really even knowing them, without getting to know them. Chances are they're unbelievers. I get that. But chances are 100% that you, at one point in your life, were also an unbeliever. And you need to get that. And you are no more deserving than anybody else apart from Christ. Because, again, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So, so don't be so quick to judge. 
We talked about this in, in James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brethren, let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Jonah was slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to judge on his own initiatives, his own merits, and we all want to just say, Jonah, stop and look in the mirror. You're not coming across as any better, any more righteous, any more faithful than any other person in this book. Even the animals repented better than we're seeing the heart of Jonah in confession and repentance. Number three. Number one, be careful of trusting in yourself too much. Number two, be careful of judging others too quickly. Finally, number three, be careful of forgetting grace too often. Forgetting grace too often. Uh, the most memorable, miraculous story in Jonah, of course, is, is Jonah chapter 2. This is the episode where he gets swallowed by the great fish. And everything in Jonah 2 is, is distinct. Whereas chapters 1, 3, and 4 are narrative genre in the Bible, chapter 2 is poetry in the Bible. It's Hebrew poetry, so it really stands out. And what I showed you at the time was the whole poem in chapter 2 is two stanzas of a poem. They're arranged chiastically. Everything moves toward the center, and everything moves toward the endpoints in those stanzas. And the two lines that stick out the most in Jonah chapter 2 are verse 6 and verse 9. And they're unique in Hebrew poetry because most of the time you have lines that, that mirror themselves. There's a parallelism. One line says one thing. The second says another thing that's just like it, just a little differently. Both Jonah 2 verse 6 and verse 9 have no parallel line to them. They are what we call a monocolon. And those are extremely rare. It's the, it, it's the rarest form of a line of poetry in Hebrew poetry that you will ever find when you study it. So when you read Jonah chapter 2, our eyes are immediately, what pops out at us is the last phrase in verse 6. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, says this, yet you brought up my life from the pit. And that metaphorical language is an image that pictures Jonah, not just as a dying, helpless prophet at the bottom of the sea, but it depicts Jonah as a dead man who needs new life from God. It depicts somewhat, metaphorically at least here, a death and a resurrection, especially when Jonah gets spit back out on the dry land. And everything in the chapter is, culminates with and, and concludes with this, this huge climactic phrase in Jonah 2, verse 9. It's, if you're going to memorize a verse, this is what I would tell you to memorize, Jonah 2, verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. With that statement, Jonah at the very least was proclaiming the Lord of Israel is the source of grace, he is sovereign over grace, and he is the bestower of grace. He is the God of salvation. He authors it, he finishes it. He secures it. He makes the plan of salvation. The God that we serve from Genesis to Revelation is not a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. The God we serve is a God of grace, is a God of salvation and deliverance, who has a desire to redeem the creatures who are made in his image, yet fallen because of sin. We're very perplexed 
about this statement because just a few lines later, in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah, Jonah preaches to Nineveh and he says absolutely nothing about the grace of God. He says nothing about the grace that just delivered him from the belly of the fish, right? His, his sermon is one of the short, shortest sermons in the Bible, one of the most effective in the Bible. The whole city repented based on it. Look down at chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. Put his soapbox down, and that's what he preached. And nothing in there, absolutely no part of it, shows any aspect, any inclination, any iota of the grace of God that he just personally experienced four verses ago in chapter 2. How can this happen to a prophet of God? The gospel of grace is, is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. In fact, you can say that every act of sin is an act of unbelief. Because apart from grace, all of us will default into works. What we do to merit God's favor. Apart from grace, all of us will also default to religion. Look at my actions on the outside, pay no attention to my heart on the inside. Understanding grace makes a person a Christian, not merely a moral person, a religious person, or a nice person, because you can be moral, religious, and nice and know nothing of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you miss grace, you can be a person who manipulates into thinking that you can control God's blessing. God, look at all of the things that I've done for you. I went to church every Sunday. I, I gave my tithes every week. I, I prayed this many times. I read my Bible this many times. You deserve to bless me. Remember the elder son in the parable of the prodigal? If we don't understand the difference between religion and grace, when people get healed, we will end up getting angry. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. Um, do you guys know Colossians? You can uh, turn from your place in Jonah here. Look at Colossians chapter 1. This verse just came up to mind this week. Um, I was reading through Jonah and thinking about grace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. It's a really interesting phrase at the end of it. Verse 5 talks about the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6 starts out this way, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it, speaking of the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard the gospel and understood, do you have the grace of God in truth? Paul over and over again will use the phrase, the grace of God the message of God's grace to depict the entire gospel message. Everything that he wants to say about the gospel, he can say about grace. When Paul wants to summarize the gospel, he will talk about grace. When he preaches the gospel, he will say that I preach nothing among you except for the gospel of grace. And we forget grace far too easily as Christians. Um, 
How do we, how do we summarize this? I want to I just talk a little bit about the goodness and the character of God, and then we're going to start a brand new uh, church history series next week. So I encourage you to come back for that. When biblical scholars and Christians study the character of God, there's really two grave errors that you want to avoid. Some people study the character of God, and they want to cut God into these tiny little pieces, right? So you, you separate off the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the justice of God, the truth of God, the veracity of God, all these other things. You just cut God into these tiny little pieces, and you perform somewhat of a virtual autopsy on God with excessive analysis. You look into his traits, and you often miss kind of the big picture of God, his holiness, his justice, his, his perfect unity of, of all those things coming into one individual, one unified element, an aspect of who God is. This is the modern struggle with God, right? Because we can't understand the God of wrath on the one hand and the God of love on the other. How do you marry up those two ideas about God? It just doesn't make sense to me, and so therefore I'd choose not to believe in your judging, wrathful, condemning God. On the other hand, the opposite error is also true. Some of us don't think too deeply into the individual characteristics of God, and we just, we just look at God as kind of this, J.B. Phillips called him the oblong blur. It's kind of the, the divine, the belief in, this, in the whatever, someone up there somewhere perspective. Um, instead of going into that over-analyzing, detailed look at God, our concept of God becomes a, a warm feeling or, or a mystical leap into this great unknown. And the best systematic theologians are, they are eager and attentive to stay away from both of those errors. They start by placing God's attributes into broad categories. Most talk about the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes of God. Other people, and, and the one that I like the best is from Millard Erickson. He talks about the greatness of God, his sovereignty, his power, his majesty, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. He knows everything. He is everywhere. All those aspects of God's greatness. And then he talks about the goodness of God on the other hand. God's greatness, Millard Erickson says this. Uh, it's good. He says, God is personal, all-powerful, eternal spirit, present everywhere within his creation and unchanging in his perfection. If you, if you read the Westminster Confession, if you read statements of faith and systematic theologians, you're going to find statements just like these, these big, broad categories of God. And it's a great and awesome God who is both sovereign and, and present everywhere. Nothing comes before him, nothing comes after him, and yet Erickson tells us he's still a personal God. The God that created the universe and everything in it cares about you personally. So much so that he wanted to engage with you at a personal level through the person of Jesus Christ. Being fully man and fully God came to die for us. The greatness of God inspired the hymn writers to pen, When I in awesome wonder consider all thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. That power throughout the universe displayed. This is the Romans 1 God. This is the Psalm 19 God. This is the Job 38 through 42 God. The massive God. Great in his creation. And if all we knew of God was simply his greatness, 
Erickson says this, he might conceivably be immoral or amoral, exercising his knowledge in a capricious or even cruel fashion. That's the modern concept of God's wrath. They see the God's wrath as the greatness of God that might be amoral or immoral. And so they fail to see the personal loving goodness of God with his grace and mercy at the very same time. And, and here's what Erickson says. This is, the, this is the hardest lesson, I think, for Jonah. He didn't understand the goodness of God. Erickson finally says, because God is good as well as great. He can be trusted and loved. God's goodness is his purity. It's his integrity. It's his love. In God's holiness, he is perfect in his justice, his righteousness. 100% it is pure, without uh, defamation, without error, without infection at any point. His integrity, God is faithful, he is genuine, he cannot lie. In his love, we would say that God is benevolent. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. We believe in a gracious God of the Scriptures. For the life of him, Jonah couldn't comprehend the love of God. He could comprehend it personally for him, but not for others. For Jonah, grace had limits. The Ninevites did not deserve it. He, as a sinner himself, for some reason did deserve it. Tim Keller's got two really good thoughts on Jonah in his book on Jonah. He says, sin always begins with the character assassination on God. He also says this, ignorance of the depths of God's grace causes our most severe problems. In other words, when you consider yourself, your others, your circumstances without a heavy understanding and an ironclad commitment to the grace of God over all of them, your life is going to be riddled with problems. Relationships, careers, jobs, community. But if you understand the grace of God as it is revealed in the Scriptures to us through Jesus Christ, those thousand lesser evils will not become a part of your daily existence as much. Getting a hold of the grace of God and the goodness of God will solve and save ourselves from so many lesser issues. And here's what I want to close with. God deals with people not on the basis of their merits or worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need, which is God's grace and God's goodness. God deals with his people, not on the basis of their merits or worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need. And their greatest need is for God's grace and his goodness. If that's true, and it is true, I had a, Brad, you'll appreciate this one. I had a great preacher in my life, Dick Hill was his name, in Mississippi. He would often say this, in my humble but accurate opinion, in my humble but accurate opinion, God deals with his people not on the basis of their merits or their worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need. And their greatest need is God's grace and goodness. And if that's true, the worst things that we can do as a Christian is judge others too quickly and forget grace too often. The best thing we can do as Christians is to contemplate the goodness of God repeatedly and share the grace of God contagiously. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is what? 
is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When the Apostle Paul summarizes his long and effective ministry in Ephesus in his farewell in Acts chapter 20, 2024, he says this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I might finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. And here was that ministry, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. May it be said of us as well. Continue praying. Continue looking for opportunities to share the gospel with other people. Uh, Don't do the Jonah. Don't do the things that Jonah did. And do the things that we've talked about uh, in Jonah. Think about his goodness, his grace, and talk to other people. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray in just a second. If our music folks, I think Sam and Hannah are coming back up in a second. Um, The guys are going to come down as we take the Lord's Supper. Our deacons and elders help to distribute this. Uh, we believe at Tulsa Bible Church that this is an ordinance for the church that's for believers as we remember and celebrate uh, the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And we take the supper as a, uh, a command from God, but also um, understanding a little bit of some of the background from the Passover, from the Old Testament. So I want to talk about a, a couple passages of Scripture as, as we do that this morning. And I'm going to pray as the, uh, as the guys come down and get ready to pass this out, okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much um, for allowing us an opportunity to, to study your word, to look into these thoughts and passages and the things that we learn from the book of Jonah. God, um, we thank you that only you could give us a book that is filled not only with man's successes, but also their failures. We thank you that we can look at the life of Jonah and learn from his mistakes. Uh, We thank you that he took the time and and you saw fit to give us the book of Jonah, this message, that you might give us a heart for the lost and um, a heart for the grace of God to see other people come to know you. Lord, I pray, as so many have emailed me and and talked about uh, people in their life that they are praying for that would come to know you, I want to pray that you would just do a work in their heart and in their life that is something that we can't do. You would soften their hearts. Pray for our city of Tulsa. Unlike Jonah sitting on the hill looking at Nineveh, we we look out at Tulsa and we see a a city who's in desperate need of you. We pray that you would do a work in, in the lives of unbelievers that we know that we don't know in the city that only you can do through your spirit. God, and as we take the Lord's Supper now as a, as a community, we just pray that the a reflection of the gospel, the images, the symbolism here would resonate deeply within our hearts and drive us to a closer relationship with you. And we ask all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.